Well, this morning has been phenomenal with the speakers that we've heard from, but the keynote, and I think deservedly today, is Dr. Gary Habermas. He is renowned expert on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He has co-authored over 40 books, over 100 articles, over 1,500 lectures. We were speaking, and he couldn't think of a town with more than, I forget how many people, a few thousand people, really. I mean, he's been to most of the cities in the country with this message, and I just want to say that he's not going to maybe say it himself, but he has literally changed the landscape of Christian apologetics. Why? Well, when you go through best facts and you go through the argument for the beginning of the universe, the design, the standards and morality, that gets you to theism. And I've done that. They're great arguments. We need to learn them. But Islam, Judaism, and Christianity are the three great theistic religions. But if you want to go straight to Christianity without passing go, you start learning the minimal facts approach to the resurrection, and it takes you right to the foot of the cross. So I want to say that Dr. Habermas has changed my life in a couple ways, but one way that he might not realize is he validated what I was, what I was thinking at, at a time. I saw him at Biola for lectures, and he walked in, and it was 8 o'clock, and he had his cup of coffee. And I was just kind of like you know, letting the caffeine stream through, stream's the wrong word, honey through cold tubes was the caffeine waking me up. And I kind of peeled an eye open, and he was there with his coffee, and he said, I know it's 8 o'clock, but I asked the staff if we could start at 9 o'clock. I am not a morning person. And after that, I said, you are my people. You, you are my people. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Gary Habermas. Thanks. Didn't you tell me they said no? <laughs> I'm not sure about the Biola story. It's true, but I think the rest of it was when I said, can I start at nine? They said no. <laughs> it's the first time it's ever happened. I teach only PhD courses, and we go from eight to 4.30. We have to go for a week straight because people fly in for the course, and only a dozen people can take the course. And since I'm the boss of the class on my own campus, we start at nine. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason. I'm not cheating anybody. You know, usually people get so tired, they let the class out by 2.30 or 3.30 in the afternoon. I don't. I keep them all the way to the end. So I give them the break at the beginning. So just so you're not sitting there thinking, he's cheating them. <laughs> I'm glad to be with you. I'm really happy to be with you. Wished I were here earlier, and I wished I saw the four guys speaking because I know them all quite well. Frank Turk, I'd have to have roughed him up a little bit. Um, that's, that's hockey versus the Navy. I was a um, head ice hockey coach at Liberty for nine years, and Frank, you know, he's a Navy guy, but uh, Frank's Frank. Sometimes he has to be roughed up. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, can somebody tell me, how, I'm on till what time? I'm sorry? You can look it up. Yeah, Nate said I could speak till nine. So, no, I, I didn't do it for that. I just did it to be a smart aleck. I'm getting the answer here. To what time? 
No, that's both lectures. What time do I have to stop in this one? One what? 120. Woo! All right, this will be high octane. All right, of the two messages, this one purposely does not have a PowerPoint. It has a PowerPoint, but I quit using it. Um, you'll see why in a minute. I'm going to come down to the floor. Do the, after I introduce it, I'm going to do the rest of the lecture going across. Well, I may not walk where there's no chairs, but I'm going to be walking a long distance here across the front. And I was doing this in Oxford one time, and a guy said to me, he said, forget your PowerPoint. Don't even bother putting it up anymore. He said, you're a human PowerPoint. Well, if you think about PowerPoints, they're, make, they're to make you stay on task and to stay awake, especially right after lunch. So my moving, it's too much of a distraction to stop and push the buttons. But I'm glad to be with you today. One thing I will agree with Grant and, and the previous speakers here, this is the greatest topic in the world. I didn't say the greatest speaker, but the greatest topic. When people come up to me and say, oh, that was the most enlightening blah, 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 and they're talking about my presentation, I'll say, I have a standard response, and I say, God raised him. I only talk about it. And God's raising Jesus is the most incredible single fact in the universe. If there's no resurrection, there's no faith. Paul, Paul said so himself. So on the authority of the inspired word of God, I can say Paul said without the resurrection. Twice, within just a brief tract, he says, without the resurrection, your faith is vain. Now, interestingly enough, he says it twice, and the two words that we translate vain are different Greek words. So from two, I don't know why he changed the words, but they both mean the same thing. It means empty, fruitless, without basis. So... Let's say it this way. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. With the resurrection, we have everything. It's the light switch when you need the light. And if it's true, we can rest in that. And there's a lot of ways to go after that. I'll try to see how much time I have left and what I can unpack at the end. But my task today is to tell you that not only is it the greatest event in the world, we arrived there by normal history. We're not pulling any strings. We're not doing anything goofy. The same kind of history that tells you that George Washington was the first president of the United States is the same history that says Jesus was raised and dead. It's not because, oh, wow, it's supernatural. We can't talk about it. I'm not asking the supernatural question today, the did God raise Jesus question. It's certainly there. But I'm asking the question, was there a man named Jesus? Did he die? And afterwards, was he seen? That simple. And, and it wouldn't be that much different. I don't mean to be facetious. I'm just saying history is history. It wouldn't be that much different than you going to your best friend's funeral. And a couple days later, you're in a supermarket. And he walked in. And you cannot believe it. And you said, I was at your casket. And he said, yeah, that's because I died. And if he was in a car accident and he had scars, maybe, you could say, those things are healed. I mean, it's him. But you can't understand why he's alive, but you can't dispute your senses. And maybe while you're in the supermarket, you pull three or four more of your friends over. Bob, come here. Tom, hurry up. Look, Jim's here. 
And later, when you guys are all getting together and if you talk about it, you have a lot of faith in the fact that you really saw him and didn't, he's gone. Let's say he, you turn around and he's not there. And what do you say? I'm just making up a scenario, but the disciples were shocked. And what do you say? Well, I don't know. I think the Lord let Jim comfort us for 10 seconds. I don't know, but we know he was there. Well, that's kind of what the disciples went through. And I want to show you that today by giving a normal history argument for the resurrection. One thing I want to say before I begin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to turn there with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is, you could say, speaking on a college campus. Now, he, what I mean by that is he's speaking in a, in a pagan surrounding in ancient Greece with ideas that were not Jewish, talking about resurrection. They scoffed at his resurrection teachings because with Plato, they believed that after you died, you lived again. And it was a glorious existence, but it was bodiless. You went bodiless to the heavens. You were a glorified spirit and you learned. And for the rest of eternity, you piled ideas into your mind. If learning's not your thing, I guess you don't like Plato's view of heaven. But, and that was the view the Greeks had. And Paul's there going, no. It was like Jim in the supermarket. I mean, he really appeared. And Jim said, excuse me, and he reached over and picked up a pack of cookies and opened it up and started eating a couple just so you could see what was going on. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did some things to make you never forget that he was there. How do we know that? Well, here's the one thing I want to share with you. I said college campus because Paul was in a, in a, with a rough crowd in a Greek market and um, he was doing an argument and he presented the gospel up front. I go, to, I go to college campuses a lot. Last week I was at Purdue, Butler, and IUPUI. That's a funny one. If you know what IUPUI is, it's like an extension campus. It stands for Indiana University, Purdue University, and Indianapolis. An extension campus that has 30,000 students, whereas Indiana and Purdue have much more. And so I'm presenting the gospel. And here, here's why it's so cool on a college campus. You start talking about the resurrection, but if you can use 1 Corinthians 15, which is by far the most evidential passage on the subject, Paul starts out with a gospel invitation. So I think about the job Nate did this morning and his, the great way he weaves the gospel into what he wants to get across. Paul said, when I came to you Corinthians, I presented the gospel. And here's what he said. You can read verses one and two. He says, when I came, I gave you the gospel. Now, I write a lot. Footnote, gospel. Whenever the gospel is defined in the New Testament, now here's the way I look at it. There's slightly different takes. But the Greek word means evangelion, and it simply means the good news. And the good news is that Jesus came and made the path of eternal life open for us. Well, whenever gospel is defined, other things are mentioned, but these are mentioned all the time, every time. Deity, death, resurrection. Deity, death, resurrection. You say, well, yeah, but you go, the passage right here says burial. I know. Other things come in to the passage from time to time. Well, how do you know those three are the key? Because they're the three that are mentioned every time. 
Burial's not mentioned every time. Once it says born of a woman, and I think that has to do with contrasting Jesus's nature, God-man, with truly God, truly man. After all, he was born of a woman. But that's not repeated as the central to the gospel. We believe it. It's very natural to be born of a woman. You know, we all were, but that's not what the gospel is. Deity, death, resurrection. So Paul comes and he says, I presented the gospel to you. And then there's another side of the gospel. The gospel definition is what's true. And then the other question is, what are you going to do with it? That's the human side. And you can use words like born again, but that they've been co-opted by cults and other groups. So I like the phrase, I do. Did you say I do to Jesus? Now, I just did a marriage just weeks ago. I don't do a whole lot of them. But I just did one a few weeks ago for my 32-year-old son in my living room. He's never been married before. I don't know. I don't know if this is a harbinger. I, don't. I asked the Lord, please let all my children marry Christians. Let me see that before, while I'm still alive, because my wife died of cancer when, I, when she was 43. I'm remarried, but we had to go through that as a family. I said, please let me see all four of my children. He's the last one to got married. So I told my wife, if I get hit by a car this weekend, <laughs> I think you could probably say my prayer has still been answered. And we were in my living room, and I said the words, for better or worse, rich or poor, only here you come to the part of the marriage ceremony that's not true of Christianity, till death do we part. That's sad. I never paid attention to those words till my wife was dying. But Christianity only gets better at that point. So Paul starts the message. He lays it on the table. I can be at a state university. And they, they've never once said to me, oh, you're baiting and switching. You came here to present the gospel. No, I came to present 1 Corinthians 15. And for crying out loud, I'm doing it in the context. Paul starts. First two verses. I preach the gospel, deity, death, and resurrection. What are you doing with it? And then he starts in verse 3. And notice these words. They're very, very powerful. I gave you what I was given. I gave you what I was given. Now, a lot of times, if I'm in a church, I'll say, did you all hear those words? I gave you what I was given. And you say, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not dumb. I was a pretty good high school student, a pretty good college student. I got that the first time. Go ahead. No, 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 listen. I gave you what I was given. What's significant about that? Josephus tells us that Pharisees taught by passing on tradition. Any good teacher teaches by passing on truth that have come up this far to us. Any good teacher repeats. I'll be doing it today. We repeat. And Paul says to them, I'm giving you what was given to me in the learning context. Duh, that's how the Pharisees did it. Duh, Paul was a Pharisee. So he's passing it out. But what does that mean? That means he got it from somebody else who got it from somebody else. And that's how they passed it on. If you want to know how old the resurrection message is, because when you're doing history, there's two important things I want to work on today. I call them the two E's. Do we have early testimony? And do we have eyewitness testimony? Now, you can have eyewitness testimony that's not early. I heard of a man who was doing his memoirs of World War II in the early 1990s. So, okay, well, we have a tendency to believe what he says, eyewitness, but come on, that was 50 years ago. You can't remember things for 50 years. That's baloney. 
So that's an eyewitness that's not early. We want to know if the resurrection message, it had been better for his, for his, if he published his diary, let's say, that he wrote during the war, and he published it six months later. That would be early and eyewitness. I want to know how close do we get back to early and eyewitness on this data. If Paul's passing it down, passing it down, passing it down, how close does he get to the cross? That's the issue. And, and the last thing I'll say before I come down on the floor in the New Testament, the most exciting question, as far as I'm concerned, is, it's like Jeopardy. I'll give you the answer. You can make the question. Um, of, I guess the other way around. I'll ask the question. Of what did earliest preaching consist before there was a single New Testament book? What was preached about Jesus? Now, Christians might say, well, read the book of Acts. But, I mean, the book of Acts has got to cover a long, long time. What did the preaching actually sound like? What was the sermon like? What was the chief message they spoke on? Well, in the New Testament, there's so much data on this point that I'm teaching a PhD course on this, Lord willing, this summer. And the whole course is on the first 20 years and a certain kind of material we have in the New Testament called creeds. The New Testament is full of them. There's dozens of them. Creeds, let me ask you, let me say it this way. Sociologist, Craig Evans, of the guys you had on this morning, Craig Evans would be the one to answer this. But most scholars today think that Jesus' audience and the audience of Paul and others were probably 70 to 90% illiterate. How do you teach people, how do you pass it on if they're literate? Easy. You give it to them in an early, sorry, easily memorizable form, maybe even in a song. Now, do you have to be, do you have to be able to sign your name to say, Jack and Jill ran up the hill? All right, I won't ask if anybody's illiterate here, but if, if you don't know how to read and write your name, can you repeat that little ditty? Could you be illiterate and sing all five or however many verses of amazing grace there are? Could you sing it and not miss a word? That's how the New Testament taught. And you've probably heard Philippians 2 is probably a hymn. Colossians 1, probably a hymn. And if I had, had time to just unpack some of these hymn things, there are so many gems, but we never, we never appreciate them. Now, I'm not putting anybody down, but, but evangelicals reason like this, and I understand it. I teach at Liberty. Evangelicals go like this. This book plus the Old Testament, these are, iner these are inerrant books. I don't, need to do, I don't need to know about the nuts and bolts and how it came down if I know that this came from God, so I'm only responsible for this. I understand that. I understand that argument. I believe that argument. But what unpacks these verses? For example, what if I told you one of these creeds? They're pre-Pauline, by the way. I'll have to explain that when I start this lecture. But these are so early that some of the earliest believers added Jesus to the Shema. How many of you know what the Shema is? Okay, a lot of hands going up. The Shema is, let's say, the Shema is the Old Testament, John 3.16. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Well, 
you can look it up while I'm talking, but in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, in one of these early creeds, Jesus is moved into the Shema. The Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, is one God. And they go, well, how come there's two names here? Lord and God. Well, in the Old Testament, they would have said, those are different names. But New Testament, they're going, God is the Father, and Lord is the Son. And by the way, Lord is the way Jehovah was translated in the New Testament. Another creed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God's raised from the dead, you'll be saved. That could, I imagine that could be the verse for this conference. Certainly one of them. And it's a creed. And it calls Jesus Lord. Pretty heavy. So when you start finding these dozens, and you're going to say, well, how do you know where these verses are? There's a science to that. But everybody agrees where they are. So the facts you know, must be pretty unanimous there. And I'm going to use those to answer this question. How far back can we get? Because I want to ask, what's our earliest source? Okay, having said that, Okay, I'm going to come down here, my PowerPoint. All right, this is ground zero. Now, why do you call it that? Well, it's the cross. It's crucifixion. But scholars say it's either 30 AD or, and you might say, let me guess, 29 or 31. No, 33. You've got to get the moon right because of the Passover. It's complicated. But 30 AD is the most common. I don't care what date it is. Plus, for my figuring, I'm going to ask you to jump in with some, do some subtraction here, do some math. So it's just easy to call it ground zero. This is our to and from point, And we want to know how close down there when they're doing the gospel and sounding the churches, how close can we, how close to our sources get back to this point? That's the question. Okay, now you've asked the average Christian, how do we know this stuff? They don't know about the creeds. And this answer is entirely fine. Nate, to show I'm senile, what did you guys say, 120? 120, is that what you, I was told? Forget the small things, keep doing the big things. Like I told you before, you, were, you ran away or something. I told them you thought I could go until 6 o'clock, so uh, we got enough material to fill this. Um, most Christians are going to go, look at the Gospel of Mark. They don't know where the creeds are. They never heard of the creeds. That's okay. I'm not saying anything bad about it. But the most common answer, and a good answer, is go to Mark. Now, I'm going to use the critics' dates because the whole way I'm going to use in my argument today, I'm basically, not here, but when I get down there and say, and Paul says, when I get there, from that point on, I'm doing the minimal facts argument. I'm using only data which critics allow. You go, what kind of critics? Well, how about, a, how about the best-known critic of North America, the atheist Bart Ehrman, Ph.D. New Testament, Princeton Seminary, um, major writer, and he will grant this material. Almost everybody who writes. You know what? I'd rather deal with an atheist, agnostic, skeptic on this one because, I don't know, they lay the facts out more easily, and Christians don't answer this question. They don't answer the question because they go, well, the gospel say, and that's true. But I want to do history, and I want to know, can we get closer to George Washington? I don't want to know if somebody talked about George Washington 50 years later. That's fine if they did, and that would be part of my study. But I'd rather know what Martha said six months after he was inaugurated. You know what I mean? 
I'd like to know what Thomas Jefferson said when the two of them were having coffee together. I'd rather know that. So, understand my context. I love the New Testament. All right, most scholars are going to say, most Christians are going to say, I'm going to use their dates. Why do I do that? To show you that they don't have a leg to stand on. To show you that even on their dates, nothing I'm saying changes. They date Mark about 70 A.D. If Mark is, so do, so do some evangelicals, but if Mark is 70 A.D., then think with me now. If this is our earliest gospel, it is plus what? Plus 40. Critics date Matthew at about 80 A.D. or plus 50. Luke at about 85 or plus 55. Everybody puts John at about at 65 or, sorry, 95 or plus 65. The worst it gets is 65 years later. The best it gets from the Gospels is Mark at plus 40. And maybe Mark's 60 instead of 70. Now, in case you've heard this, there's been a fragment of Mark floating around that evangelicals have been waiting for a date on for probably three years. I was with Craig Evans, your guest. We were in Vancouver together, and he spilled the beans a few years ago and said something he wasn't supposed to say. And I said, Craig, you're not supposed to say that. He goes, I'm okay. He wasn't. He got chewed out. Uh, he probably didn't tell you that. Um, and the fragment of Mark has just been dated by only one guy. There's a reason only one person's done this, but he's a paleographer. He's a specialist, not necessarily he could be Jewish, he could be Christian, he could just be some other kind of scholar, but his expertise is handwriting analysis by date, and their work is very much prized. But nobody would look at the Mark thing, well, there were problems, not with the manuscript, but that's a whole other story. It's political, and I can't get into that. But the only paleographer that I know is given a date, and I asked three times, and I was told I could reveal this by a man who was another researcher who was there with the paleographer, said that the fragment of Mark, have you heard this yet? You have? The fragment of Mark dates 80 to 110 AD. It beats the previous earliest New Testament portion by about almost 50 years. And that's Rylands on John. Now John's later, so Rylands on John is about plus 30. This on Mark, from the contemporary dating of 70, this is plus 10. And now scholars are saying, yeah, I don't know, maybe Mark belongs back here a little bit. And, you know, evangelicals, really. So, two have, not because of this manuscript, not because of this fragment, two other skeptics, both agnostics, both unbelievers, unfortunately one just passed away, but both agnostics have published saying the book of Mark is 38 to 42 A.D. And another one, this, one of the ones that takes the 38 to 42, says Matthew's 50. That's minus 30 from where it is now. This is exciting. Now, one time I was debating an atheist. You know, it happens a lot. I hate debating. I hate it. I hate dialogues. I hate debating. And I end up, for someone who hates it, I end up doing a lot like almost 50 times. And this guy, he got me so ticked. And he said, because see, we were at a seminary, we are at a major seminary, it's part of the Greer Herd Lecture Series, which is the best known debate series 
in, in anywhere, well, in print, because all the books were printed. Um, and the guy said, the Gospels are lousy sources. Plus 40 to plus 65, or later, you know, they'll always throw in anything they can to just create a little bit of question. Or later, you can't remember things that long. It's lousy sources. And so when it was my turn to talk, we had two pulpits up on the stage. And I said, do you think we know a lot about Alexander the Great? He goes, yeah, a lot. I said, a lot? Yeah, we know a lot about Alexander. I said, do you know when the first major source about him was written? No. I thought to myself, well, you dumb, you should have. Because don't, don't go running your mouth until you know the facts. You're just going off on Christians. If that's Alexander's death down there, 320s BC, on my same timeline, here's the first major work on Alexander. Here's John. <laughs> Folks, I cannot walk far enough. I don't have it measured out, but I have to go through those doors. One time I was in a church like this and I went out that door. Door locked. <laughs> they let me back in. It was during church service. The earliest source in Alexander is just short of 300 years later. More than three times the distance of John. John, prejudiced. This source, excellent. You see where I'm going? And then, here's the comeback. Well, that's because the guy who wrote about Alexander was an historian. These guys simply spread religious propaganda. I said, oh, really? Well, once again, you should know the data. I felt like saying, don't mess with me, I'm a hockey coach. Sometimes, is there a lot of hockey influence down here? Not too much? Sometimes you feel like going hockey on guys. You just get a little ticked. You know, well, that's history. This is mythology or hearsay. Oh, really? Here's how the best known biography, by the way, the two, that's the first one. The best, it's 280. The best known two books for, for Alexander. Arian and Plutarch, you know what they are? Four and a quarter to 450. Almost a half a millennium. Give me a break. Well, now we have his objection. Yeah, but he was doing history. You're doing hearsay. Really? Here's how Plutarch, best known Alexander biography. Here's how uh, uh, Plutarch starts. First two pages. It's commonly believed that Alexander was the son of a god and his mother was born of a virgin. I am so glad we're talking straight history and religion never comes in here. That's how the book opens. Oh, well, the rest of the book is, really? There's almost no Greco-Roman author, historian, who doesn't bring the gods into it, fate, prophecy, everything. And you know what? What if they're right? I'll, this is just another footnote. How many of you know Craig Keener's two-volume work entitled Miracles? It's already a, a classic. Can I see the hands just to get an idea? All right, around the whole crowd, maybe a dozen. About a thousand. I asked Craig. Craig's a New Testament guy. You know Craig really, really well. And you talk to Craig and you go, Craig, how many cases do you have in there? I don't know, Gary. I'm not an apologist. I've never counted. I'm only running down the cases I have. Never mind, Craig. I'll do it. Just don't worry about it. So I kept 
I made a list of some of his most evidential cases. They're incredible. Now, a lot of them are just hearsay. I'll be frank. And Craig would say that. He says at the beginning of the book, I'm only telling you stories. I didn't verify all these. But some of them he's got before and after x-rays, before and after CAT scans, before and after MRIs. And he's got the data. So maybe these guys who mix in supernatural beliefs in their history, you know what I'm starting to think right now? They're right. The world is that kind. It's a supernatural world. Now, all the supernatural is not of the same kind, but there are, the, the world is full of supernatural. Uh, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> Another whole topic. So, so this guy's up there putting Christians down, saying there's no basis, and I'm saying, do you like that? Isn't that a case of prejudice? Sure. All right. That's a look at reliability. That's the way most Christians do New Testament. It's fine. It works. But let me give you what I think is a more direct and much more highly evidential argument. Could be wrong, but here's the argument. Paul. This is the minimal facts argument. When does Paul write this stuff? And why should we listen to Paul? Well, Paul is the critic's darling. They love him. Well, he's a good guy, but... Why Paul? You have the Gospels. Very easy. They don't think any of the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses or apostles. Now, evangelicals, when you think about it, only put two in that category, two out of four. Now, the others had eyewitness testimony, but only two actual writers, uh, first and last, Matthew and John. But they don't mean it like that. They mean it like the books might be good and they record some decent things, but they're anonymous. We don't know who, we don't know who wrote them. But they love Paul because they will grant you that of the 13 books that bear Paul's name, seven of them are authentic. Bart Ehrman, the famous atheist, calls them undisputed. Undisputed Pauline books. Everyone grants this. What does that mean? Use them. Oh, wow. They believe they're inspired? No way. Well, why do you use them? Because it's a good book. The same way you go to books a library, do a report on George Washington, pick 10 books down off the shelf, and you know good and well, none of them are inerrant, but they're good history, history books. So they'll say, we know who the author is. He was a Pharisee. If you believe the account in Acts about him studying under Gamaliel, I'm not doubting that, but I'm talking about critics now. Um, that means Paul basically had a PhD in Old Testament. Scholar, scholar. Anthony Flew, in your book, my uh, really, really good friend who who, before he passed away in 010, shook the world, best-known philosophical atheist, became a theist. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with me telling you this, but I just was with, with um, Hugh Ross. He and I, are, for some reason, were together a lot lately on the platform. And he told me he reads everything. In fact, I just met a professor up at Purdue who did her PhD at Caltech and worked with Hugh. And she's on the Purdue faculty, and she loves the Lord. She's becoming a Christian. Hugh reads everything, and he told me that in the last three years, write to Hugh if you want to quote this, but in the last three years, he's not read a single cosmologist who doesn't say either that he's become a deist, he now believes in God, where he was an atheist, he now believes in God, or he's open to deism. Believes in God, or is open to God. Not a single one, and that includes Lawrence Krauss, the best known atheist, Christian disliker, to say it nicely. And he says he's open to deism. Things are happening. They like Paul because he's in the right place at the right time. Here's the main reason they like Paul. 
Not only is the eyewitness to the resurrection, whatever that event was, is the way the, don't forget, everything I'm saying here is the way the critics would say it. But he knew the guys who saw all the other appearances. Oh, how do you know that? Because in this book, 1 Corinthians, he says, I gave you what I was given. Where and from whom did Paul get this material? Won't give you the whole argument, but here's the critic's conclusion. This is a consensus New Testament position from the vast majority who do not believe in any kind of inspiration. Here's their answer. Paul got this material. I forgot where ground zero is. Um, about there? Okay. Okay. Not, okay. I'm, I got to be on this side. For five years worth. They believe Paul got this material at plus five. What? Hey, look, Mark's good at plus 40, and I can live with that. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians at plus 55. That's only 25. We could quit right there. Let me ask you, how many of you in this room know for sure you remember things that happened 25 or more years ago? Look at that. Some of you look like you're raising two hands. I mean, seriously, it could be a marriage, right? It could be being present for your child's birth. Could be when your child, children became Christians. You don't get those things out of your mind. Well, by the way, there's a University of Chicago, very well-known, very well-known scholar named Paul Bercour, who says on memory, he says on memory studies, he says, we have a tendency to remember those events in our lives that are what he calls, I love this, events that are uniquely unique. You're not supposed to qualify the word unique. But we have a tendency to remember words that are uniquely unique. It's pretty cool. Now, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but if you're Peter, he's denied his Lord three times. Pretty black Saturday for you after Good Friday. If you're James and you live with Jesus at home and your main question growing up was, why does he never get in trouble? I mean, come on, that would bug you, wouldn't it? And then if you're Paul, and you thought you were doing, a God, doing God a favor by killing Christians, and he said, I didn't even deserve to be an apostle, would you remember a resurrection appearance of the risen Jesus? And would you remember him putting his hand out to you and say, touch me, and say, brother, you are still part of the kingdom. Don't you dare walk away. You know, he say that? Well, what about to Peter in John 21 when he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Why would he tell Peter to feed the sheep if he considered him a heretic? Feed my sheep. The angels of the tomb in Mark say, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's been raised from the dead. He's going, tell me, Peter. Peter's supposed to be the source behind Mark. Tell me why Peter would have ever forgotten that his whole life. Go tell the disciples. And Peter, here's the disciples. Well, Peter's the disciple. We don't have to repeat his name. Here's Peter. Dude, that was me. Not because I'm famous, but because I'm loved. I'm in the kingdom. Would that be a uniquely unique event for you? I can't think of anything more important. And Paul comes to them here. You go, yeah, I get all that. It's uniquely unique. Why five years? Let's do the math. Is this ground zero? 
First time I've asked anybody. All right, here's how we do the math. When did Paul come to Jesus? Whoops, if you folks will excuse me one second. If I don't tie my shoe, there might be something going on here. When did Paul come to Jesus? Well, according to critics, he comes to Jesus. The, the trip to Damascus is plus one, plus two, or plus three after the cross. That's like saying Acts 9 comes one to three years after the cross. Let's take an average. Jesus dies. Plus two, Paul comes to the Lord. He says, I didn't go right away up to Jerusalem. I waited three years. You do the math. Two plus three equals five. You go, well, excuse me, but I think his conversion was three years later. Hey, I'm good with that. Here's the cross. Plus three. Three years later, goes to Jerusalem. What, what year? Plus six. Is that early? Is there anything like this in the ancient world? I don't know. I'm open for you to tell me. Somebody might find something. I say this a lot over many years. I've given this lecture almost 2,000 times. Nobody's ever said, have you heard? Now, there could be something there. And that'd be interesting if I'm doing a report on George Washington. But I'm doing a report on the resurrection. And Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and he says, I spent 15 days with Paul, sorry, Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus. Bart Ehrman, the famous atheist New Testament scholar I keep citing, because he's the best known skeptic in North America. Bart Ehrman said, interestingly, I'd like to spend 15 days with Peter. And then he said this. You have to remember, he doesn't think the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses. So understand his next comment. He said, where do we get closer to eyewitness testimony anywhere in the New Testament than right here? But well, how does that work? Because Paul interviewed Peter and James, C.H. Dodd, the famous Cambridge University New Testament scholar said, he said, Paul spent 15 days with Peter and James and it's safe to say they did more than talk about the weather. What would you say? Here's my number one question. I was a skeptic for 10 years. I could tell you that story. I used to debate Christians. Um, my mom called me one time. I lived away from home. I already had my PhD. And she said, are you coming with your doubts? I said, I'm probably going to become an, a Buddhist. Okay. I went through some severe doubts. Here's my question if I'm Peter. Sorry, if I'm Paul. It might be Peter. Here's my question from Paul. I wasn't here, guys. I wasn't back there. I will tell you what Jesus looked like for me on the road to Damascus if you tell me what you saw when Jesus appeared to you, as it were in the supermarket. Because, I mean, that's the kind of sign Jesus gave that he's really here. You know, give me a piece of fish. I'll tell you if you tell me. And he might have added, I'll tell you how I felt if you tell me how you felt. Because all of us were skeptics of one sort or another. How did you feel? You say, how do you know they talked about that? For two reasons. Number one, the, the theme of the book of Galatians, I could say in one sentence. It's, it's a short book. The theme of the whole book is, it's all about the gospel. Get it right. Add to it, it's anathema. Subtract from it, it's anathema. Get it right. That's Galatians. How could Paul put it in Galatians if he's not talking about the gospel? But here's the second one, second reason. 
I just figured out, I just figured, thought a third. Nate, here's how I think of things on my feet and then write up an article later. Now I told my TA to write it, we put both our names on it. Um, three reasons. One is, the whole book's about that. Secondly, I'll tell you what happened just 14 years later. He says it is about the gospel. And thirdly, there's a Greek word in, in Galatians 1.18, hysteresi. The root word is histor. Greek alphabet's different than English alphabet, but let me transliterate it. The word Paul uses is, root word, hysteresi. Root word is H-I-S-T-O-R. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word history. That doesn't mean it meant history back then, but I'll tell you what it meant from other uses at that time. It meant to investigate something firsthand. 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, whatever it is. I lived in Montana for three years and it was 10 o'clock. I don't know what it is here. Eyewitness news came on my television. That's hysteresi. That's historic. And Paul went here to ask them about the gospel. How do you know? Because he returns just a few verses later. He said it was 14 years later. We're still only at 48 AD. It's plus 18. Those of you who raise your hands, you can remember things at 25, can surely remember things at 18. And he said, I went back up to Jerusalem. Galatians 1, I mean, Galatians 2, 2. Study it sometimes. It's a weird verse. I set before the other apostles the gospel I was preaching to see if I was making a mistake. What? I set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. I wanted to make sure we're all on the same page. Keep reading. And you read the other apostles' response to him. Five words in English. They added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. That means no corrections, no caveats, no footnotes. Now, later they said, by the way, when you're doing all that, remember the poor, and because there's Jews in that town, tell them when they eat their meat, don't drink blood. And, and Paul said, I'm happy to do those things. Especially to remember the poor. Paul's taking up offerings for the poor all the time. It's not part of the gospel. They just said, that's a good opportunity to do these other things. Fourteen years later, they added nothing to me, and they laid on Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, I imagine this church probably lays hands on people for certain occasions or gave them the right hand of fellowship. Could be when you become a member. Could be when, I don't know if you have or, or um, treat elders or deacons in that manner. How about when you send somebody to the mission field? You do that kind of stuff. But let me tell you something. No church I know gives somebody the right hand of fellowship when they're a known heretic. So that means they were all on the same page. In fact, Paul tells us from his viewpoint, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, right in the passage you looked at, whether you're asking them or you're asking me, this is what we believe and this is what we preach. You don't believe me? Ask Peter. Ask Andrew. Ask anybody. You'll hear the same message, DD, death, resurrection. All right, we're almost done. Here's the message at plus five. Well, Paul heard it. But don't miss the forest for the trees. This is when Paul heard it. That's good, but that's when he heard it. If Peter and James had the text before he did, their testimony is earlier than they shared it with Paul, right? 
When Nate witnesses, did he know the gospel before he presented it this week? Really? Paul hears it. They had it. And it took a while to put this thing in creedal form. In the, in the, it's believed that in the original Aramaic, it reads like this. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Jack and Joe went up the hill. Okay. It takes a while to do that. So let's go from this side. Cross. They had to put it into creedal form, start talking about it, and go meet with Paul. Paul hears it here. They had it here. The standardizing comes here, da-da-da-da-da. But the event is here. We're right on top of it. Do critics agree with you? Bart Ehrman says there are many New Testament passages like this one that can be traced to within one to two years of the cross. You go, well, wait a minute, that puzzles me. They started preaching just 50 days later. That's right, but that's not the question we're asking. We're not asking when they start preaching. We're asking when's our earliest source for it? Well, Acts, no, Acts is after Luke. Well, they talked about earlier things. Yes, I know, like the World War II veteran who talked about his World War II. But what about things right here? So it's not the event or their knowledge of it. It's when the report was in a form that could be reported. And it's one to two years. James D.G. Dunn, as well known as anybody in the ancient world, in the ancient world, that's true, but as well known as anybody who studies historical Jesus, James Dunn, not an evangelical, says this material could not have been standardized more than a few months after the event. Well, unlike Christmas, we know that this event happened in spring. That means it probably was standardized and went out in a dot da 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 form. You can read 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7 and get that. That means it went out the same year if it's a few months after spring. The same year it happened, it was proclaimed. And we got it here. They give it to everybody here. And Paul hears it probably for the first time from Peter and James here. Folks, the greatest message in the universe, and it goes back to the very beginning. Larry Hurtado, recently retired from Edinburgh University, Hurtado says the report of these things happened days after the event. Oh, well, that's the book of Acts, 50 days. Days. You know why? Because this is the most uniquely unique event in the world, and we are trained to remember uniquely unique event. I may have been... I may have seen your baby after she or he was born three days later, but I remember being in there the minute my baby emerged. I won't forget that. I won't forget saying I do. And I won't forget saying I do to Jesus. Folks, let me end with this thought. One of the two guys, maybe both of you, mentioned this morning before I got up here that Christians are not about being a defensive. If someone asks us, we can answer other questions about other religions. But let me tell you something that might shock you. I only realized this way after I started studying it. We may be the only religious belief in town, including the three great monotheisms. We may be the only one with substantial positive apologetics. Every religion there is, every cult there is, does this. What? What? You're a loser. What? You're wrong. Man, Sometimes I'd like to stone you. You're wrong. 
done, wrong, loser, wrong. Here's what they don't say. My beliefs are true because. They might give you some things like, well, because mine's the word of God. Well, nobody lets us get away with that. That's why we're doing an apologetics conference. We give reasons for the New Testament. Not because you don't have to go home and review the reasons before you have devotions, but for people who need reasons. And sometimes those are believers. We're the only one who says Christianity is true because. I give a lecture, um, 10 reasons why naturalism is false. It's the most predominant view in the Western world that believe the natural world's all there is. I give four arguments for religion in general. A Buddhist could say amen to them. 10 reasons for the truth of Christianity. We have a lot of arrows in our quiver. It's true. And there's nothing like this event anywhere. You know what's starting to happen now? I said this a few years ago. I don't want to try to sound like a prophet. But I started saying a couple years ago to my friends, just watching, watching too much Fox News probably. I said to people, they can't match us on the data. They're going to try to legislate us out of existence. You can't talk about it. Do you think I want to hear that garbage all day? Why don't you answer it? See, there you go again. It's that kind of stuff. That wasn't an answer. It was ostracizing. It was lock you up for certain things, which looks like it's coming. Rough times. But when they can't answer the questions, they have to find a different way because they can't stand the truth. A lot of things I like to say. Um, but let me just end by saying, Jesus is risen from the dead. It's the greatest teaching in the world. Let me end with the words of our Lord. John chapter 14, verse 19. Because I live, ye shall live also.